Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This week on It Starts With Attraction. Hi, I'm Phil, the Director of Marketing for Marriage Helper, and I have the great honor of opening up today's episode on It Starts With Attraction with Kimberly Holmes. For many of us, we go through hard seasons in our lives. Maybe you're going through a transition at home, looking for a new job, having marriage issues, or just got the news about a major medical diagnosis. You know, one defining moment for me and my wife in the last two years was the adoption process for our daughter. You know, what does that season look like for you? Are you living one full of stress and pain and hurt? Or are you living one full of gratitude and hope and praise? Today's episode comes from a talk that Kimberly gave to an organization here in the Nashville area. And it's one that she walks us through the struggles and joys in her and Rob's adoption story and their journey. Let's take a listen. There's a process to falling in love, and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. I was six years old when I first knew that one day I would adopt. There was an amazing story that I don't have time to share with you this morning of an experience that I had on Honduras with my family. And you may be thinking in your head like, oh, is this really sweet mission trip experience? No, it was on a cruise, but it was still a really powerful experience that that we had on that trip in Honduras. And from that day forward, I know that God put the desire in my heart that one day I would be adopting. And over the next 20 years from that point forward, God continued to grow that desire, to grow that yearning, And I just had experiences that continued to confirm it. Many of you probably have had similar experiences in your life or maybe are in the middle of experiencing that now, where you feel like God has put something in your heart and he's in the middle of growing it. And when I was in college, I ended up going on a mission trip to India to an orphanage for about a month over Christmas break. And it was when I got back that the deal was sealed. I knew that not only was I adopting, but one day I would be adopting from India. And a couple of weeks after that was when I went on the first date I ever had with my husband. We went to the Cheesecake Factory, and I dropped the pizza in my lap. It was beautiful, beautiful moment. But I did probably everything that you weren't supposed to do, including apparently eating pizza. Because a lot of times people will say, you got pizza on your first date with your husband? I'm like... I wasn't going to get a salad. What was I supposed to do? So in that conversation, I said to him, just so you know, one day I'm going to be adopting from India. So if that is not in the cards for you, if that scares you away, there's no reason for us to continue this conversation or continue dating. And he said, cool, no problem. So from that point forward, we, of course, ended up getting married, always knowing that one day we would be adopting. 
after we got married, my husband was in the military. He was in the military for seven years. We moved all across the world. We went to Korea. We went to the very unknown place of lower Alabama. We went to tons of different places. And it was never quite the right time, right, to start the adoption. We wanted to get where we were settled more. We wanted to get back to family. And so we did. He finally left the military at the end of 2016. We moved back here at the beginning of 2017. And it was at that point that we thought maybe it's time to start building our family. Or maybe it's still not the right time. That's what we kind of kept finding ourselves saying. Do we, are we financially stable enough? Are we ready for this? Are we ready to give up our freedom? And when we were, uh, again, it was January of 2017, we were talking about this, processing through it, and our church started a 30-day time of prayer and fasting. And it started on January 29th. And going into this time of prayer and fasting, I just really felt this huge, the word is, the word is anticipation. I felt this anticipation that God was going to do something amazing in this next 30 days. And I'd never quite felt that way before. And I didn't know what to expect. And so I remember that I, I decided to, like, I was really going to do this. I was going to give up food from sunrise to sundown for 30 days because I felt like that was just a mirror of the extravagance of what God was going to do during that time. And so I started out and I prayed and I fasted and I prayed and I fasted and nothing happened. So I prayed and I fasted some more. And it felt like the longer it went, the easier it was, it was to go without food, the easier it was to fast, but the harder it was to pray. Because why was God not doing anything? I had felt such an anticipation. I felt like God was going to do something. And more than that, during the, this 30-day fast, I actually reached out to a couple of adoption agencies three times. No replies. What does God doing? What is, why is God not doing anything? Have any of you ever felt this way? Like you were so sure God was going to do something in your life that he had called you to do something specific. He was moving you toward it. And then silence. And so I ended that 30 days of prayer and fasting, wanting to feel closer to God than, than I felt my skin. But I actually just ended hungry, probably very hangry, (laughs) and angry, frustrated, lonely. God, why aren't you speaking to me? In high school... um, I've, I've shared this maybe here before, but I'm, I'm pretty open about the fact I've struggled with anxiety and depression for several decades. Uh, it started very young in, in my life. And in high school, I remember finding solace in the works and the readings of Mother Teresa, who many of you probably know. She was, of course, a nun that lived in India, and she did amazing things. She started a school or a place for the dead and dying. She did amazing things for the most outcast people in Calcutta, India. But what I didn't know, I mean, we hear all the great things Mother Teresa's done, but many of us don't know that actually during her time on earth, she wrote these journals where she just cried out that she never 
heard from God. And there were these writings of her journals, and this one, I, I love this quote from her, in this time that she would call the darkness. She would call it the darkness of her soul in the times that she felt the silence of God. And she said, there is so much deep contradiction in my soul, such deep longing for God, so deep that it is painful. A suffering continual. I don't feel like I'm even wanted by God. Like maybe I'm repulsed, empty, like I have no faith, no love, no zeal. My soul holds no attraction. Heaven seems like it means nothing. It looks like an empty place. But pray for me that I keep smiling at him in spite of feeling this way. For I am only his. He has every right over me. I am perfectly happy to be nobody, even to God. That's heartbreaking for someone to feel that way. And especially someone like Mother Teresa. And so I I looked at her example and I said, if she was able to move forward even when she didn't feel it, how can I do that too? So I knew what God had placed in my heart, but I had no clue how to make it happen. So what do you do when you say yes to God and then God stops speaking? Do you do more? Do you pray more? Do you keep the fasting? Do you, you maybe rebel? Do you eventually just give up? Or maybe you do nothing. I want to share with you today the story of what happened in my life. It was a couple of months after the January, the 30 days in January of prayer and fasting. And my husband and I decided to join a small group at our church. And our first night there, we enter in and we meet a couple who is in the middle of ending their adoption process at India. They are about to go and get their daughter. And I look at my husband and I say, it is a sign from God. Like if we ever needed one, this is it. And of course he said, I don't get so fast. Like don't get carried away so quick. I still don't think it's the right time. And I said, okay, I'm not not gonna press it. I'm not gonna push it. Um, A couple of days later, He walked into my office at work, and I'll never forget, he said to me, it is never the wrong time to do the right thing. And he showed me where he had started a conversation with an adoption agency, and we were going to move forward in this process of an adoption. I was on cloud nine. I felt like maybe this is it. God has answered our prayers. Like we're going to see the goodness of what he has been saying in my heart for 20 years But the next 18 months were filled with anxiety, fear, and some of the hardest times I ever had to go through in my life so far. And I realize today that there is definitely going to be trials and struggles that continue to come. But for this, up to this point in my life, the next 18 months of the adoption process that we went through was lonely. Because even though God started moving the process forward, there were still a lot of obstacles to overcome. When we started talking to several of the um, just different people, adoption agencies, social workers, when we told them about our, our heart, how we wanted, we felt like God was putting an older child on our heart, we were met with, you don't want an older child. They'll never, they'll never bond to you. They'll never attach to you. What you want is a baby. It's like, 
okay, but I don't think that's what God is saying, but I hear what you're saying. And so we, we kept praying through this, kept praying through this, and then um, we started feeling like it, there wasn't one, there was two. Like, we were supposed to have siblings. The adoption agencies didn't love to hear that either. Siblings are impossible. They're so rare. We had a couple of them say, we, we won't even work with you because we don't think that, that it's even possible for you to get that. And once again, God, you've made it so clear to us. Why are these doors closing? Where are the people? And on top of that, as we went through the adoption process, our marriage got real rocky again. Things that I thought had been healed, that I thought we were well past, Satan saw a great opportunity to bring all of it back to the surface again. And it felt like everything I ha- that I felt like I had control over in my life all of a sudden was just going the wrong way. It was trial after obstacle after all of these things. And on top of that, my anxiety through the roof. There were days, I mean, probably once a week, I was having full-blown panic attacks, just not knowing how to trust God. I didn't know how to trust God. I found myself continuing to turn to God, but really realizing I was scared of God. Because my faith was just strong enough that Satan could not convince me that God was not real, but it was not strong enough that Satan could not convince me that God was not good. You can believe in God and not trust. When we look at the Hebrew word of of what our Bibles say is faith, the Hebrew word of it is trust. It is to trust God. And in the research about trust, as many of you know, I do a lot of work with relationships, a lot of work with marriages, and trust is important, right? Especially in our marriages, how much more important it is in our relationship with God. But when we look at the research of trust, we see that trust builds when both people in the relationship believe that the other person is going to do what is best for the future of the relationship. And I don't know about you, but the scariest place to be is believing that God is real, but doubting that God is good. Because when you can't trust him, who else can you turn to? That's why I felt so ultimately alone. But I realized that also it was the first lie that Satan ever told us in the garden, right? When we go back to Genesis 3, we see that God had told them out of the goodness of God, don't eat of that tree because when you know those things, you don't want to have to know what those things. You don't want to have to deal with the knowledge of good and evil. Can't you just trust me? And Satan slithers right in and says, but do you really trust that God is wanting what's best for you? Do you really trust that God is good? And it's the lie he's been telling ever since then. I knew what God had spoken to me. And I didn't know what it looked like to trust God. But I got to a point where I finally realized I have to figure it out. Because my health was starting to suffer. My marriage was suffering. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I was scared to turn to God. It's the only thing I knew how to do. 
And so like Jacob in Genesis, I said, God, I'm going to wrestle with you until something comes of this. Because something has to change. Something has to break. After that, uh, we finally found an agency that said, if you are believing that what God has for you are siblings and you know all of these things, then we believe that with you. And so we started all the paperwork process, which if any of you have ever gone through an adoption, it is whew, a lot of paperwork and a lot of paperwork that you trust to not just the United States government, but the Indian government, which is whew, its own set of faith right there. And in that process, after we got all that paperwork done, we finally got an email one day with what they call a referral. And it's the referral email that has pictures of children and medical files. And from there, you're supposed to look it over, pray over it, and then, and then basically go back and say, is this what God, are these the children God has put on our heart or not? And so I'll, it was one morning we got that referral just after months of waiting. And there they were. A four-year-old girl. Her name is Booby. Oh, I knew I would cry. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm a crier anyway. But ultimately, we were matched with our children. And after that, over the next six months, like if I thought the time before that was hard, the six months after you see your children's faces, and then you miss her birthday, Christmas, his birthday. I remember... right before before Christmas, going to my mom and saying, I'm missing the best days of their life. My daughter had turned four. My son had turned two. And she said, the best days are when you're together. And I thought that I don't trust God. Because if God wanted to, he could make it happen now. If God wanted to, he could move mountains. And he's not. Why? And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for you in your life where you're not believing that God is going to do it for you. It may be your marriage. It may be your health. It may be the health of someone you love. It may be your children. It may be your finances. I don't know what it is for you, but there's something in your life where you might be doubting that God is good and that God is going to come through for you. I know that that was it for me. And several years ago, Barna, which is a research group, does a lot of research on churches and Christianity, they did a study where they asked people to use one word to describe the season of their life where they felt closest to God. And the word was trial. It's in the season of trial when you realize you have nowhere to press in 
that you learn how to press in and trust in God. And there's one way that scripture teaches us to respond when we face the trials in our lives. And that word is praise. And it's the irony of the whole thing. Because the last thing I wanted to do, I don't know about you all, you probably are way better Christians than me. The last thing I wanted to do was praise God for something I hadn't seen yet. The last thing I wanted to do was praise God when I was anxious and fearful and doubting. I didn't know how to praise. And it was then that I found this story in 2 Chronicles. (laughs) This obscure story about King Jehoshaphat. And in this story, he was the king over Israel at that time, and he just got word, King Jehoshaphat did, that the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the, Me- the Meunites were about to declare war on the people of Israel, and they were headed that way. And Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news that he got, and he begged the Lord for guidance. But the Lord didn't respond to King Jehoshaphat. The armies were coming. And what's, what always just amazes me about this scripture is that when you look back at it, the Ammonites, the, uh, the Moabites, those are the relatives. Like they are the relatives of Abraham when we go back to it. So they're, these people are like cousins and they are now the enemies and they are coming and they are wanting to attack them and take them down. And guess what? Even more than that, very specifically, and King Jehoshaphat goes on to say, he goes on to say, God, you could have handled this back when we were coming into e- in from Egypt, but you told us, no, you told us not to go into the land where those people were. And now they're coming up against us. What are you going to do now? Because we don't know what to do. And King Jehoshaphat goes on and he says, God, you alone are worthy. You alone are in heaven, and I know what you said. You gave this land to Israel, but right now I'm scared. This is my paraphrasing. I don't see how we can overcome this battle, and you could have handled this before. You wouldn't let our ancestors invade those lands and take out our enemies when we left Egypt, and now they're coming back. Why won't you stop them? God, we do not know what to do but we are looking to you for help. Then one of the Israelites spoke up and he said, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged by this mighty army for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them, but you will not even need to fight. Take your positions and then stand and watch the Lord's victory. Early the next morning, They set out to meet their enemies. And I don't know about you, but when I hear this story and when I think of myself and put myself in this story, I think I would have heard him say that God said, you don't need to fight, but I would have been putting on my armor. I would have been polishing it up, putting it on like, I'm not going to go out the next morning with nothing. We're still meeting thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of warriors who are trying to take us over. But God said, you won't even need to fight. So King Jehoshaphat, he didn't put the artillerymen in the front. He didn't put the infantry in the front. He put the singers. I don't know about you, but I'm not 
keen on putting my life in the hands of like a worship band. My husband was in, <laughs> my husband is in the military, right? Like, I want the snipers to be the ones in the very front. Those are the people I want protecting me. No one is going to be taken out by a trumpet. Maybe a tuba, but not a trumpet. Yet here they were putting the singers in front to walk ahead. And they set out singing and praising, saying, give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. And I read through this and I think, for what? He hasn't done anything for them yet. Give thanks to the Lord for the blessings, for the trial, for what he will do. And at the very moment that they began to sing and give praise, it continues on in Second Chronicles, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. At the very moment, they began to sing and give praise. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. It, they started attacking each other so that when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. God said, you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch my victory. I did not know what it meant to be still. Because up to the point of our adoption in my life, I tried to take control of everything. With every day in our process that I went without being with my children, I had to learn to trust God. And I never knew that I would understand the fullness of this story in Scripture until we ended up in India in February of 2019. It was two years totally into our adoption journey. And um, we arrived at the orphanage that morning at 10 a.m., getting no sleep the night before. I would always say to people, how do you sleep the night before you know you're going to meet your children? And all of you have gone through this because all of you have had children in some way, pregnant, adoption, however. And I always wonder, like, how do people sleep before that? You don't. I figured that out. You just don't. You don't sleep. And so we ended up with no sleep at the orphanage. And we had a couple of minutes to spend with the um, orphanage director before they brought the kids in. And he was just telling us different things about them because all we had had was two pictures and a video for six months. So we were asking, like, what are they like? <laughs> you know, what are they like? What are their favorite foods? Like, 10 minutes to get all this information that we could of the only person who's been with them for two years. And right before they were about to bring the kids in, I looked at him at the orphanage director and I said, do they know that they're coming with us today? Because I had heard a lot of stories of other adoptive families. They show up at the orphanage and the kids have no idea that they're leaving. And the orphanage director looked at me and he said, oh, oh, they don't just know that they're going. They're excited. Because you see, for the past six months, while you've been waiting, we 
have been telling them about you. We've been showing them your pictures. We have been explaining to them everything that's about to happen. And so not only are they ready and excited, they've packed bags. I know, right? And then he said to me, stop crying, you'll scare them. (laughs) Y'all, I somehow the Holy Spirit like zipped it up. I did not shed a tear that it's like, I can't scare them the first time they ever see me. And in that moment, I realized the past six months that I've been complaining the past six months that I haven't been trusting the past six months that I have felt like God has been silent. God was preparing I did nothing. I felt like God did nothing. And even when we think back to that 30 days of prayer and fasting, I found my journal during that time. And the day that we started prayer and fasting, January 29th, 2017, right there at the top of my journal, is the day my son was born. I felt such anticipation then I felt like God didn't do anything. God had done everything. I didn't do anything. All I had to learn was to praise, was to stay still. And it was the hardest, it is still the hardest lesson that I have ever had to do in my life. But I did realize my mom was right. The best days are the ones where we are together. And God has made up for the time. What is it for you? Where is it that in your life, you may be sitting here today and thinking, Kimberly, I hear it, and that's a really touching and great story, but I'm in the middle of it. I don't see the light on the other side. I don't see how I could get through this. There's still a cancer diagnosis. There's still a miscarriage. There's still a marriage that's on the rocks. There's still my life of being a single mom. I don't see my way out. I don't have an answer for you today, except that God will move because he loves you. It may not look the way you think it's going to look. It may not end up the way you think it's going to end up. But Romans 8 tells us all things work for good. And it's not that God does these things because of our faith. It's not like our faith turns into this genie lamp where we end up getting what we want, but it depends on our amount of faith. No, not at all. But I think there's something that happens. I know there's something that happens when we choose to trust God, he changes us. And he changes how we react, how we respond, how we perceive, but it happens in our praise. And the praise that happens before the breakthrough, and the praise even when it still hurts. All I know is that this story in Scripture isn't just something that happened back then. It is a plan. It is a, it is what God wants us to believe he will do for us now. Because 
these stories in our Bible are the stories of us. He's still working. He's still moving. And he still wants what's good for you. So I don't know what's going to happen for you. I don't know how it's going to end up for you. But I can guarantee you that when you submit your life to praise, when you submit your life to worship, when you submit your life, even when it's hard, even when it sucks, and even when it doesn't feel good, that God will meet you there. Wow. This was a hard one. But such great words of encouragement from Kimberly's story today. You know, this is a great reminder that even moments when we feel like God can't come through for us, He can. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. I know several people in my life that will benefit from hearing this story of hope. Also, please leave a review. It sounds cheesy, but it really does help us reach more people with stories like this one and stories of hope and change. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, stay strong.